Would you pray with me? Daddy, we are so very thankful, not just for what you've done, but for who you are. We're so thankful, not just because you've provided, not just because you go before us, not just because you protect us, because you love us. We are thankful for who you are. You are good. You are faithful. You are love. And you have turned your goodness and you've turned your faithfulness and you've turned your love, your loving kindness towards us. Though we don't deserve it, though we could never earn it, you've given it to us anyways. And for that today, we say thank you. And now in the name of Jesus, we ask Holy Spirit that you would begin to move and to stir in this place as we open the scriptures, as the words come from my mouth, Father, would they be yours? Would your Holy Spirit use these words to convict of sin? Would your Holy Spirit use these words to draw us to be more faithful to disciples today than we were yesterday? Would you examine every corner of our lives to the deepest, most dark places? Would you begin to call out the things that we have hidden that we would follow even in the wilderness, wherever you would lead. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. I want to share a story with you. This morning, I was in high school, my junior year, all throughout high school, I was a part of a ministry called Young Life. Uh, and it was a very influential ministry in my life, uh, uh, maybe more the people, more so than the ministry, uh, specifically my young life leader, Tim Tracer. He began to pour into my life and he began to teach me what it was like to love other people and what grace was like. Uh, and, and one day, my junior year, he invited me to, to go to, to a trip to a young life camp in Colorado. And it was one that, how can you say no? I was 17 years old. The world was before me. I'm learning what it's like to become a man, adventuring, uh, uh, just life before me. And what better place to adventure, what better place to learn to become a man, what better place to go than Colorado. So we hopped in a van. We drove through the night and went to Colorado. And our job there was to be on the work crew. There was a, a ski, ski week for high school students from across the country. And our job was really pretty simple. We would wake up early each morning around 4 a.m. We would make, prepare, and serve breakfast, clean up, go snowboard all day, shred the narnar, come back, fix dinner, and then go to Young Life Club, which was kind of their nightly meeting. And so that was our job. That was our role every single day. Wake up, make breakfast, eat breakfast. That part was important. Uh, Serve it, clean up, shred the narnar, come home, make dinner, go to club. And we repeat this each night. Well, one night uh, in between having made and served and cleaned up dinner and then going to Young Life Club, I was at the bookstore. And again, I was just growing in so many ways. I was checking out a lot of different authors there in the bookstore. Uh, that week was the first time that I had read C.S. Lewis. I read the Screw Tape Letters that week. It was just an unbelievable book, eye-opening. Um, I picked up a copy of Mere Christianity. was going to begin to dive through that. Uh, and I was looking through all of these books when a man came up to me. And he said, young man, excuse me for bothering you, but um, I wouldn't read that book you have in your hands. And I, was, I, I thought it was just kind of odd that this grown dude I didn't even know would come and, and talk to me. And it was in my hand. I, I had a Max Licato book. And I thought, yeah, I'm 17. I, I don't know much. 
but I'm pretty sure Max Lucado is legit. And so he, he was like, no, nah, no, nah, I, I don't, I don't think so, young man. I, I wouldn't read that, but I was like, you know, I wanted to be respectful. Like I didn't want to like step up on this brother and be like, yo, bro, what's up? Like, how you trying? So I, I didn't want that to happen. So I, I was trying to be respectful. I was like, sir, well, could you tell me why I shouldn't read this book? And, and he began to, to tell me how he thought that Max Licato was not very educated and that he had bad theology and he just uh, um, masked all these holes in his story uh, by telling a good one. And he began to go on and he really started to badmouth Max Licato a little bit. And I was getting a little frustrated because, again, I had no idea who this guy was. And I thought, listen, Max Licato is legit. Everyone I knew, everyone I talked to said he was a wonderful storyteller. He pointed to grace so very well. And so finally I was like, sir, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but everything you're saying goes against everything I've ever heard. So just could you tell me, like, who are you? Like, how can you stand here and say I should not read Max Licato? He paused for a moment and then smiled and he said, well, son, my name is Max Licato. <laughs> and so in that moment, man, there wasn't nobody more surprised in that bookstore than I was. But you see, once I understood the identity of the person speaking, it changed everything he said and it changed my response to him. Once I understood who he was, it changed everything about what he said and it changed my response to him. And friends, we find that the same thing is true in the gospel of John. The fourth gospel written by the fourth evangelist was an apologetic letter. It was a, a book, a letter written to give a defense for who Christ was. That his goal, the fourth evangelist, is very, very clear. We don't have to look very far to figure out why exactly he was writing this letter. In John chapter 20 and verse 31 the fourth evangelist says, but these things are written so that you might know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God. And by believing in him, you may have life eternal. That that's the reason the gospel is written. It is written for no other. He is written that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that in him, you might have life eternal through his name. So in other words, he writes so that those who, under, who hear, those who read this letter would know that Jesus is not just another dude. That he's not just some guy. That Jesus is not a liar. He is not a lunatic. He's not a good teacher. He's not some prophet. He is God. It is written that you might know. And we see throughout the gospel, the fourth gospel, we see throughout it that the, the author points to this exact idea throughout the scripture. Throughout the Gospel of John, he points to this idea that Jesus is not just some dude. Take, for example, John chapter 1 and verse 1. It starts this way. In the beginning. Now, we've heard these words before, right? In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God, Genesis says, in a very pointed way, the fourth evangelist says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, in verse three, all things came into being through him. Genesis, in the beginning, God created. John, in the beginning, all things came through the word. Without him, not one thing came into being. And what has come into being was life. And that life was the light of all people. And then in verse 14, the evangelist says that the word took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And his name was Jesus. Throughout the gospel, through miracles, 
through teachings. When Jesus would heal the unhealables, he would go and love the unlovables. He would hang out with the unhangoutables. All of these things would point to the fact that Jesus was not just a man, but that he was God. For I believe that the fourth evangelist knew that if his audience could understand who Jesus was, that it would change everything about what he said and it would change their response and their lives for eternity. One of the ways that the fourth evangelist goes about reaching this goal, one of the ways that he goes about to help his reader and his audience see that Jesus was not just a dude is through the I am statements. These I am statements are only found in the fourth gospel. You can't find them in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're only found in the gospel of John, and they all point to this same reality. I'm beating it home because it's a big deal. They all point to the idea that Jesus is not just a dude. He is God, that in the person of Jesus, that in the life of Jesus, we not only see, we not only come to understand the heart of God, we come to know God himself. And so throughout this Lenten season here at Venture, we're looking at seven I am statements of Jesus. And today we're going to continue that in John chapter 10 and look at the statement found in verse 11. So if you would take your scriptures uh, and Bible or phone form uh, and turn to John chapter 10. And as you turn there, I want to take just a moment and begin to set the context for what's happening. My, My favorite theologian, Ben Witherington III, says this, that a text without a context is just a pretext for anything that you want it to mean. That anytime we dive into the scriptures, we must put it in the proper context so that we understand what it was intended to mean. Otherwise, we could make it say anything. And so to set the scene in the context, uh, what is going on in John chapter 10 and in John chapter 9 at this time is a festival called the Festival of Dedication, or the Feast of Dedication. Uh, you actually have probably heard of this festival. You just don't realize that the philosopher Adam Sandler called it Eight Crazy Nights, uh, or otherwise known as Hanukkah. Uh, that this is going on here at this time, and what this celebration was, what this festival was, was one not just that took place in the temple, but one that took place in the home. And it was one that reminded the people of God as the Good Shepherd. It reminded the people where they called to mind a a revolt that happened just about a hundred years before, where uh, uh, the priests, those who were supposed to be leading Israel to God, had turned their backs on God and had begun to make sacrifices to pagan gods in the temple. And so then a man named Matthias led a revolt, a Maccabean revolt, uh, and he came against those who had turned their backs to God, these false shepherds who had turned their back on their role on their people, and on their God, and he led them to freedom. He led them to uh, faithfulness, as a good shepherd would, to the true God. And so in this season, they are remembering that that how uh, God set them free, the good and true shepherd set them free in a time uh, that they thought they would never be made free. In chapter 9, the second thing that we must understand is that chapter 10 is really kind of part 2 of chapter 9. And that what happens in chapter 9 leads into chapter 10. In chapter 9, we see Jesus comes and he heals a man who was blind from birth. And that he heals him in a way that that causes quite a stir. And that these Pharisees uh, come and they begin to question uh, this healing. They question the man who was healed. They question his mother and his father. 
Uh, They question him again, and then they begin to question Jesus, not so much because he healed them, but because he healed him on the Sabbath. And that was a big no-no. And so they begin to question Jesus, and and they're trying to figure out ways to, to bring something against him because this Jesus from Nazareth, this man who's not supposed to have a following, is gathering a big following. This man who's not supposed to be able to do healings is healing a lot of people. This man who's not supposed to be able to do miracles is doing a lot of miracles and he's causing a big stir and they're trying to figure out, is he from the devil or is he from God? Is he good or is he bad? And they're trying to figure out where he's at and they've made up their mind that he's not good for them. And so they're trying to figure out how to uh, ruin this man, Jesus. And Jesus then, at the end of chapter 9, comes in contact with these Pharisees and they begin a dialogue that continues into chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 9, After healing this blind man, he tells the Pharisees that though they think they see God, though they think they know the way to God, they are in fact the ones that are blind. They didn't understand this. And so the conversation continues into chapter 10. And though the theme changes, the audience stays the same. And so as we move into John chapter 10, we see as we enter into this new theme, we see three I am statements from Jesus. I am the gate, I am the way, and I am the good shepherd. We see two images that Jesus used to contrast these I am statements. One, that of a thief and a robber. And second, that of a hired hand. But it's all done for one purpose. That people might know that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did what he said he came to do. That Jesus was not just a man, but that he was in fact God. And so now, if you would look at John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, the scriptures read this. I am the good shepherd. Now, let's pause there because it's natural for you and I, when we hear somebody say, reading of the scriptures, quoting Jesus, I am the good shepherd. A natural response would be, amen, brother. Hallelujah. Glory to Maybe not a natural response for you, but for where I come from, that would be the natural. Just somebody testify, my king is a good shepherd. That that would be a natural response because for you and for me, our, what comes to our mind when we think of shepherd is a picture of Jesus, not the profession of a person. Now, I get to travel all across the country and around the world, and I speak to hundreds, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of students across the country. And I ask them everywhere I go, I ask them one question. I say, how many of you, by show of hands, have a dream? Not, not, not the kind of dream that you fall asleep chasing unicorns across rainbows. Not, not that kind of dream, but the kind of dream that says one day when you get just a little bit bigger, one day when you get just a little bit older, you want to do something. You want to become something. Who has a dream like that? And without fail, every student raises their hand. From the youngest to the oldest say, I have a dream. And I can go around and I start to ask them. There's, they basically give the same answers all the time. Some say they want to be a professional athlete or a dancer or a singer or a movie star. Some say they want to be a teacher or a coach. Clearly, they're interested in becoming rich. Uh, some say they want to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. And would you believe it? So many students say they want to be the president of the United States of America. But I would bet you my life savings that not now and not ever will a student say, young man, what do you want to be? I want to be a shepherd. 
because that's not a job that you and I think of. We don't think of a shepherd as a profession because your view and mine of a shepherd is influenced by the New Testament. It's influenced by our culture. Because when you and I think shepherd, again, we think Jesus. And so our mind jumps to Matthew chapter 10 and chapter 15, where Jesus speaks of his mission as that of a shepherd. Or we think of the parables of Jesus in Luke chapter 15 or Matthew chapter 18. Our our minds go to Hebrews chapter 13, where the the writer says that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Or 2 Peter chapter 2, where he says that he is the guardian of his sheep. Or chapter 5, where he says he is the chief shepherd. You see, your view and mine of a shepherd is Jesus. And what that means is that your view and mine is different from the view of those in the audience of the fourth evangelist, is different from those who would read this, who would hear this. They wouldn't think Jesus. They would think one of three things. Uh, Some would think um, of a profession. And they wouldn't just think of a profession, but they would think of a lowly profession. But you see, by the time of Jesus, throughout Rome and even many, many Jews looked at the profession of a shepherd as a low-class position, a low-class profession that they looked down upon. The many Jews, some Jews, especially the Pharisees, would think of, uh, uh, of something uh, uh, as, as, uh, as a picture of or a role and office of God and his Messiah. They would think back to their scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. They would think back to the prophets and they would think back to the writings and they would say a shepherd, the good and true shepherd is God himself. And they would recall Psalm chapter 23 and verse one, that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not Their minds would jump to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40 and verse 11 when when the God through the prophet would say he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. They would think of the prophet Jeremiah and and, and this prophet would come to point them to expect and to await a Messiah. They would think of Jeremiah chapter 23 and When the scriptures read, I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them and they shall not fear any longer, nor be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. You see, the people that Jesus is talking to, their mind would jump to God. When the Pharisees would hear good shepherd, their mind would be taken back to their understanding of who God is in the role of the Messiah. And I contend that Jesus would say, hey, that's the point. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one that you celebrate. And he would claim for himself. He's not just using a vivid word picture that he is claiming for himself something that was reserved for God and his Messiah. And he would do it at a time, the festival of dedication, when the people would be remembering and celebrating God as the good and true shepherd. He steps in and he doesn't just lightly use words, but he claims boldly that I am the one that you celebrate and the one that you anticipate. I am the one, I am the fulfillment of the covenants that have been made with Abraham and with Israel. I am the one that you have been waiting for. But there's a third picture that would come to mind 
uh, almost certainly, and it would be that uh, of political failure. Because you see, throughout the Jewish history, throughout Israel's history, there have been many different leaders who have been given this God-honoring role, uh, a God-appointed role, and they have failed. Kings and judges and shepherds, time and time again, have been given a role, but they've failed at it. Ezekiel chapter 34, and beginning in verse 1, describes this very, very well. Thus says the Lord God, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. In verse 4, you have not strengthened the weak, you have not healed the sick, you have not bound up the injured, you have not brought back the strayed, you have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And scattered, they became food for all wild animals. In verse 6, my sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with no one to search or no one to seek them. You see, he, this picture of these leaders throughout history of Israel who were supposed to shepherd, but instead only cared for themselves. Jesus, in our text in John chapter 10, picks up this very same idea with the image of a hired hand. Look at verse 12 and 13. John chapter 10. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. You see, the hired hand, just like the false shepherd of Israel's history, failed at doing their job. They did not have concern for the sheep, but instead for themselves, that the the hired hand, like the false shepherd, was hired to fulfill a temporary role. And so they brought a temporary commitment that they were more concerned. The hired hand was more concerned with his self than he was with his sheep, that he, the, the, the false shepherd of Israel's past may have projected concern, but when push came to shove and it was him or the sheep, he chose himself every single time. You see, there were these false shepherds that these Pharisees would think of throughout Israel's history that Jesus would allude to in this image of a hired hand. And friends, I would say this morning that there are false shepherds in your life and in mine today. Would you hear me this morning? That there are false shepherds in your life. That they're supposed to lead us to life, but instead they only lead us to death. They say that they care. They say that they'll always be there, but they don't and they aren't. That they're supposed to lead us to God, but instead they only point us to themselves. Sometimes these false shepherds look like relationships. Relationships with friends, marriage, relationship uh, dating, relationships with our parents or our children. That, that, we, that we hear this smooth talk, we see this sweet offer. That if we would just put our hope, if we would just begin to follow the false shepherd of our marriage, that everything would be okay. But what do we find? 
that marriage is hard. That, that oftentimes we find ourselves wondering, man, how am I going to make it through another week with this person, much less another night? That, that we think that, that our friends, this friendship that we've had for so long would lead us to fulfillment, but then all of a sudden our friends stab us in the back. That we think our kids will bring our marriage closer, but instead they only drive us further apart. We begin to fear the day that our kids leave the house because then we have to ask the question, what happens when I become an empty nester? Will he still love me? Will we have anything left in common? Sometimes these false shepherds look like more. More money, more success, more status, more influence, more likes on the face space. We just begin to think if I could just get a little bit more money, finally, I would be happy. If I could get just a little bit more success, then finally, I I would be satisfied. I would be complete if I could just get a little bit more. But it turns out that more is a meaty, a greedy mistress, not a very good shepherd. Sometimes these false shepherds look like our past. We think about our past experiences things that maybe we failed at, things that maybe were done to us, abuses, things that were said. We think about divorce of our parents, maybe divorce in our own life. We think of our failures and disappointments, our mistakes. And even though we've taken all these past experiences and we've tucked them in this tidy little box and we've stuck them in the very far corner, in the very back, deepest, dark corners of our lives, thinking that they won't affect anyone. That's just my little secret closet thing that I can hold on to and I can go look at every now and then. It doesn't affect anyone else. That little bitty thing all of a sudden stops being something that's hidden back and starts becoming a false shepherd. And it starts to influence our interpretation of Scripture. It starts to influence our interpretation of the way other people interact with us. They start to jade our relationships. It starts to influence our decisions. It begins to shepherd our lives in a way that we could have never imagined. And it begins to ruin us. You see, just like there were false shepherds in Israel's past, there are false shepherds in our lives as well. But Jesus comes in and says, I am not a shepherd like those of Israel's history. I am not a shepherd like that of your shaky present or your shady past. I am a shepherd like the one in Ezekiel 34 and verse 11. I am a shepherd that will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seek out their flocks when they are among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. In verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own lands. I myself, verse 15, will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. That Jesus says, I will be the shepherd that God promised he would be. In chapter 10, we see that Jesus is not just the kind of shepherd that was, but he's a new kind of shepherd. And in chapter 10 and verse 14, Jesus says that he's not the kind of shepherd that needs a name tag for his sheep. But that he's the kind of shepherd who know his sheep and his sheep know him. That the relationship that he has with his father 
is the relationship that he would have with his sheep. In verse 16, Jesus says, I'm not the kind of shepherd that's going to let my sheep have it their own way. The kind of sheep that would say that would say the kind of shepherd who would say, you know what, sheep, you made this choice. You made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. You said thanks, but no thanks. You turned your back on me. So good luck. But instead, verse 16 says he is the kind of shepherd who will seek out the lost. In verse 12, Jesus says he's not the kind of shepherd who would put himself first. He's not a hired hand. But he is the kind of shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And friends, you have to hear this. And I mean, the real you has to really hear this. These are not just claims of a man. These are the promises of God. And I know this to be true because I've seen it time and time again, where where people like you and me can have relationship with the shepherd. I know that it's true because I've seen it in countless lives and I've seen it in mine, that I can know God the Father through Jesus Christ. And check this, he knows me. He knows me by name. And he knows you too. That these are not just claims. That he has sought you out and he has gone to the furthest reaches to know you. And I know it to be true because he's done it for me. Hear me, I was born the, the unwanted product of a lustful teenage night. That's my story. And, and, and statistically, my life should be a failure. It should be hopeless. It should be without point. And yet the good shepherd sought of all people out. These are not just claims, my friends. He's backed them up. He doesn't just talk a big talk when he says, I would lay down my life for my sheep. But Romans chapter five and verse eight says that while you and I were still sinning, while we were still sinners, while we were still actively saying thanks, but no thanks, God, I can do it on my own. Christ died. Friend, he did for you what you could not do for yourself. For you see, 2,000 years ago, on a dark night, Jesus had just finished praying. And then one of his very closest friends came and with all things greeted him with a kiss of friendship. And then betrayed him and turned him over to authorities who then led him through a series of monkey court trials where person after person told lie after lie about him. He was then made to be beaten, mocked and bruised. He was spat upon, beaten beyond recognition of a man and was then made to carry a cross that was cut from a tree that he caused to grow up a hill that he formed to a place called Golgotha, where by the very people he had come to save, by the very ones he had come to shepherd, he was nailed to a criminal's cross, was made to hang there, to die a death that you and I deserve because of your sin and because of mine. And he did it, hear this, not as a, as a passive victim, but he hung there as an active redeemer. Not as a false shepherd who got caught up in some claims, who overpromised and underdelivered, but he hung there on the cross as the good shepherd who put money where his mouth was and said, I love my sheep such that I would even lay down my life for them. And then at the moment, that the fullness of sin had been paid for, placed upon his shoulders in complete control, he cried out these words, it is 
finished. Your debt has been paid. I have done for you, my friend, my sheep, what you cannot do for yourself. And in complete control, he breathed his last, was died, and was placed in a borrowed tomb for three days. But hear me, friends. Jesus did not die because he lost the battle. The point of Jesus' death was resurrection. He did not die because he lost the battle. He was resurrected because he was going to win the war. That he was going to win the war over sin and over death. That he would be risen victorious over sin, victorious over death. Because resurrection is something that only God can do. New life is something that can only come from God. What did Jesus do? He was resurrected from the dead. What does Jesus offer? New life. So what does it follow? That Jesus is God. You see, friends. When we understand who Jesus is, it changes everything about what he says. And it changes everything about our response to it. The fourth evangelist understood this. And so he concluded. These things are written so that you may know that you may believe that you may trust. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that you have waited for. That he is the son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Friends, what shepherd do you follow? What shepherd are you following? Do you follow the false shepherd? Is there a false shepherd in your life that has talked so sweet, that has offered so much, and yet you find yourself running in circles, chasing after relationship, being enslaved by addiction or by experience, that though it continues to offer you more and more and more, it never delivers? Friend, has this false shepherd broken your view of God such that you've begun to think that God can't? God can't provide. God can't deliver. God can't shepherd. God can't fill in the blank. Friend, is there a false shepherd in your life? Maybe you're following the good shepherd. Maybe that you've you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're following faithfully after him. Let me ask you this. Is the good shepherd leading you to a place that you don't trust him to take you? Is he leading you to a place that you don't trust him to go? Maybe you, you, you struck some type of 80, 20 deal with God where you say, God, you get 80% of my life in this 80%, whatever you want, you're the shepherd lead on brother. But in this 20, it's mine. You don't get this friend. Have you struck some type of deal with God? It says, you can lead me in the 80, but not in the 20. Friend, if you're following the good shepherd, to follow him faithfully is to follow him in everything, not just in some things. In a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Sean to come, and he's going to play the song that he sang before I stepped up. 
written out of Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd. And I want to invite you this morning to respond to this word in three ways. First, as Sean begins to to play, I would ask that through prayer and reflection, that just in the stillness of your seat, that you would let God bring to mind any false shepherds in your life. That you let the Holy Spirit begin to convict you through these words of any areas that you have not allowed the Good Shepherd to lead you. Then I would ask that you'd confess that just right there in your seat. After that, Sean's going to invite us to go to the table. We'll take the bread and we'll drink the juice as a reminder that the God-man Jesus is the good shepherd who followed through to the very end. He endured the cross in your place and in mine because, friend, he is so deeply and madly and indescribably in love with you that there was nothing, not even death, that would keep him from you. And as we remember the the bread and we remember the juice and we take it in, we remember his death. But more than that, we remember the new life that comes from resurrection. New life for him and new life for us. And then thirdly, when you get home tonight, this afternoon, I would invite you to write down the things that you confess to God this morning. Write them down, the the areas that you're not willing to let the good shepherd lead you, the false shepherds that you would follow. And then I would invite you to share them with someone. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's your venture small group. But I would invite you to share that with them so that our confession this morning might lead to repentance tonight and new life tomorrow. Friends, I'm going to pray. You respond in prayer, then Sean will lead us to the tables, and then we'll be dismissed. Daddy, thank you so much. Thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you for being so much more than we could ever imagine. Father, would you give us the strength? Would you give us the faith to follow wherever you would lead? Speak now in this moment, for your servants are listening.